You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, good morning. So uh, I want to start out this morning with a little bit of a visual throwback. Let's see that first slide that I brought this morning. How many of you remember these? Ah, yeah, some mixed, some mixed emotions when we see this. The magic eye thing, you remember, it was like, I think in the 90s, the magic eye deal was just a huge deal. And, and there would be images like this one. How many of you can see, like, the hidden image within that? Is it working out for anybody? Maybe we need to dim the lights. I don't know. Are we out of practice with the magic eye? Is it a weird angle for you? You should be able to see like a, a planet, like a weird planet, I think, is in that one. Or maybe that's the dolphin. From my angle, I can't figure it out. Let me see the next one. And this one is the planet. Okay, so if you see the two dots at the top, there's supposed to be a technique you can use where if you kind of cross your eyes or look past the picture and let the two dots overlap, then the image should come to life for you. And you'll see that there's like Saturn hidden in those stars with this weird like optical illusion that can be done. Let me see the next one. The next one too, as you see, there's kind of like birds in the background. If you can overlap those birds using your eyes, then you'll see like it kind of brings these birds to life. So you're not gonna see anything really different than what you, you already see, but it'll be sort of 3D. How many of you can like do these images right now? Let me see your hands if you're able to see it. Nobody? <laughs> Nobody. All right, maybe I should have tested that one person. One person, he's front row. Maybe that's the thing. More front row people, you'd be able to see more of what's going on. Uh, but the magic ideal, the, the idea of these pictures, and this is why I think we like them, is that there was more to this picture than what you could see just on surface level, right? And then if you're the kind of person that can do them quickly, then you can kind of like nudge your friends and be like, oh, you can't see that? Like you don't see the, the dolphin jumping through the hoop in there? Like, well, I can. Like, I guess I'm better than you, which is maybe why I think it fell out of use. Like, that's why we don't see a lot of magic eye stuff in 2019, because we don't like to leave people out now, right? And just magic eye left a lot of people out. And several of you know, like when it came up on the screen, you're like, oh, one of those again, like something that I can't get. But what I like about the magic eye thing and why I talk about it this morning is because it's a picture that has more going on than just to the first look. There's more going on in this picture than what is just happening surface level. There's more depth to be had. And I think that's a little bit of an analogy for the way that the Apostle Paul, who we're talking about this morning, for the way that he went about life. He went about life as if there was more going on than you could actually see. So we're in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21 right now, and we've been going through the book of Acts for, for a long time now. In fact, if you remember all the way back, it was at Easter when we first were kind of introduced to this guy, the Apostle Paul. And he was on his way to, to kill Christians. He had papers to, to commit these murders, and then Jesus intervened in his life. And from there, Paul turned his life around and he began spreading the gospel all throughout the known world at the time. He started going on all these missionary journeys all over. And we've been calling this section of Acts Advance. And this is actually our last week of Advance as we've been watching the, the gospel advance throughout the world there. And this is kind of our last week because there's a bit of a shift in the story right now. As we focus on not just the growth of the early church, but now the narrative sort of zooms in on the person of Paul. And we see that Paul's actions take a bit of a turn right here. So last week, we were, we were looking at Acts chapter 20, and we're going to pick up with there this week. And, and what my hope is, is that we could see this principle that Paul lives by, that we could figure out this, this kind of outlook that Paul has that, that allows him to look at life differently than everybody else. Because I believe if we can get this perspective ourselves, that it would radically change our lives. I believe that if we can ad adopt the same perspective that Paul had, our relationships 
would change. The way that we do our finances would change. The way that we we plan out our careers, the way that we struggle with decision-making, the way we might even battle fear and anxiety could change in our lives if we could begin looking at the world around us the way that the Apostle Paul looked at the world. So let's look at this story of Paul. So look at Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul has come to this area outside of Ephesus, and he's called to some of the Ephesian leaders there, some of the leaders of the church, some of the the Christians that we probably have already met throughout the story of Acts. Um, uh, Christians like Priscilla and Aquila, they were in Ephesus. And so probably they've gathered here with Paul in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 25, he's been giving them this whole big like speech He's been telling them all of this stuff that's going on. But then he says this in verse 25. He says, now behold, I know that none of you, that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And the reason he says this is because he's decided now he must go to Jerusalem. And so he drops that little tidbit. He's saying, I feel pressed by the spirit to go on to Jerusalem. And because of that, I feel like none of you are ever going to see my face again. And so Paul's saying, this is probably the last time that we are together. And they'd spent years together. Paul was in Ephesus for like three years during his time, and he'd written to them and all of this stuff. So naturally, this was a bit of a shocker for those people that he's talking to, for Paul's friends. So in verse 36, it says, when he'd said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken and that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they're like, Paul, we're never going to see you again? Like, Jerusalem was a dangerous place for Christians in this time. And we've seen a little bit of it already. We saw Stephen being killed in Jerusalem. We saw other persecution happening in Jerusalem. James was killed in Jerusalem. And so now Paul says, that's where I'm going, the place where it's not safe for Christians to be. And Paul is one of the leaders of the Christian church. And he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And so they accompany him to the ship, and then we hear about some of his travels. And then in verse 4 of the next chapter, 21, it says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So he's in a place called Tyree. And it says, Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So Paul gathers with some more friends in Tyree, and we don't exactly know who these people are, but they're telling Paul, you can't go on to Jerusalem. And then it says, when our days were ended there, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So we've got Luke, who is telling the story, and he's there with Paul. And we have this just another tearjerker of a scene. Where these other friends of theirs, these other Christians, they gather with Paul and they're like, Paul, you cannot go on because if you go to Jerusalem, you'll get arrested, you'll die. It's not safe in Jerusalem. And Paul says, but I'm going to Jerusalem. And they they kneel on the beach together just to see that scene, right, as they're praying and crying together. And they've got their wives, their families, all with Paul. And then Paul and Luke and their party board the ship to go further. Then verse 7, it says, when we'd finished the voyage from Tyree, we arrived at, at, at Ptolemaeus. I should have looked that one up to say it. I think it's probably Ptolemaeus. Uh, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. Another guy that we've heard of, if you remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. He was one of the seven, along with Stephen, that was set up over the church to help with the distribution of food to the widows. And so Philip is there, and they stay with Philip. And then it says, we entered his house, and he was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, a little tidbit. And then next we meet this guy named Agabus. 
which I just think is a sweet name. Like if anybody's looking at kids' names again, I think we overlook the coolest names in the Bible and just keep going with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Agabus would be a sweet name to name your child. This dude Agabus comes down, seems Agabus is some type of prophet, and he gives this big like show to Paul. He takes Paul's belt, which is just strange, right? Like the guy looks at Paul, he's like, hey, can I have your belt? And Paul's like, all right, gives him his belt. And then it says that this prophet ties his hands and his feet with Paul's belt. So either Paul's belt is really long or the guy like gets on the ground and hog ties himself, right? And he's just there talking to Paul and he's like, Paul, the spirit has told me that this is what will happen to the person who owns this belt, which is Paul. And you wonder if like Paul's standing there and at what point like he's like, this is awkward, Agabus, like do you need help out of that? Like should I just go? Because I'm going to Jerusalem. And so then it continues in verse 12. It says, when we heard this and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. We ceased. So even Luke is pitching at this point, like, Paul, maybe it's not a good idea. We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So we have this kind of montage, right? where we see people like Philip and Priscilla and Achilla and other people that would have been friends of Paul's in these three kind of stops on his journey to Jerusalem. And every time there's, there's this goodbye, every time there's weeping and embracing and people begging Paul, don't go because we don't want to lose you. But every time Paul says, I've got to go. It's as if Paul saw something different than the rest of them did, as if he was operating from a different outlook than them. And what I think is interesting, and you might have caught this reading through, is that the other believers speaking to Paul, it says that they were, they were told this by the Spirit, that in the Spirit they would say, don't go to Jerusalem. And yet Paul told us earlier that the Spirit has pressed upon him. He said, behold, in verse 22 of chapter 20, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. And so he's saying the Spirit is urging him, but then we have all these other people that are saying, Paul, you shouldn't go, the Spirit has told us. So do we have kind of a conflicting message from the Holy Spirit? How does this work out? And here's what I think it must be. Like, I don't know if I'm right or not, but just, this is what I gather from reading it. Is after Paul said the Spirit's pushing in there, he says, um, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. I think the Spirit gave the same message to Paul and these other believers, that Paul would be imprisoned if he went to Jerusalem. And so the others looked at that and said, well, that means you shouldn't go to Jerusalem, Paul, because you'll be imprisoned there and maybe it will lead to your death. And Paul had the same information, but with that information, he still felt that the Spirit wanted him to go to Jerusalem because he had a different outlook on life than they did. Paul had a different outlook on life than I think we do. He lived by a different principle. And here's what I think this principle is. Is this idea that we just gathered a little bit from what he said right there, that, that none of this matters, that he's not worried about his life, he's worried about fulfilling the mission of Christ. That he isn't worried about what's going on in this life, he's worried about pushing people on to the next life. We gather this in verse 24, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the principle Paul lived by, that his life was of no value compared to the mission of Christ. That this world that we see is of no value compared to the value of eternity and life with Jesus. And that's how Paul operated. 
So when Paul looked at life, he saw so much more than many other people saw, just like a magic eye picture, right? Like he could see the hidden depth where the others were just looking at the service saying, Paul, your life is endangered and your life is your most valuable possession. And Paul would say, that's not my most valuable possession. My most valuable possession is my relationship with Jesus. And so I'm moving on so that more people can get a relationship like that. We see this same viewpoint, the same outlook echoed all throughout Paul's writing. You would be hard-pressed to find a book in the New Testament by Paul that doesn't mention something like that verse of his life being of no value compared to the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, he says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's writing this letter from prison. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Paul's outlook. And it's not the outlook of the other believers or they would see like, okay, Paul, like you need to go on to Jerusalem. And instead they're trying to stop and saying, but, but what about your life? For Paul, in light of eternal, in, for Paul, in light of eternity, everything else became trivial. For Paul, in light of life with Jesus, life on earth became trivial. And, and I think somebody looking on from the outside of this just would not get that. But for those of us, if we can begin to, to see this principle, if we can begin to live by this outlook that in comparison to eternity, everything else is trivial, then the way we go about life would change, right? If everything else is trivial compared to eternity, my finances change, right? And suddenly $38 a month is nothing to me to sponsor a compassion child so that they too can reach eternity. For me, whatever like relationship that I've been in that seems like it's the most important thing that I might be with this person or be in that dating relationship or whatever it is, but then if I feel like that relationship isn't pushing me towards Jesus, it's maybe pulling me away, well, everything is trivial compared to my relationship with Jesus. So I know that that relationship is not what's supposed to be in my life. For a college student or a high school student, somebody that's looking down the barrel of their future and every day is being asked the questions like, what are you gonna do when you grow up? Where are you gonna go to college? What are you gonna do after college? What about grad school? How are you gonna pay for it all? All of a sudden, if we look at life not just as what we see here, but as the whole span of eternity, all of that changes. And so then I think our decision-making process can be much more clear. Well, I know what I want to do with my life is going to be something that has to do with eternity. Because what I see here is not all that there is. What is on the surface is not the full picture. And so the decisions I make, the career path I'm going to follow, it's going to have something to do with helping people get to eternity. Whether that just means I'm an accountant, but I'm talking about Jesus all the time in my cubicle, or whether it means I'm giving my life over to be a missionary or, or something like that. Our entire perspective of life, the way we go about life, will change if we can adopt Paul's perspective on life. But to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, I think this begins to look very strange. And this is where some of the friction and the conflict might emerge when we go about life one way and then other people see us going about that life that way or maybe disagree with the way we're going about life. I think there's a good example of this in one of my heroes. I kind of nerd out. A lot of people might nerd out over like sports figures or like historical, you know, musicians or whatever. I weirdly nerd out over like missionaries, okay? Like if they were like baseball cards for missionaries, I'd be collecting them because I love old missionary stories. And one of the top, like you've, you've heard of them, you've probably heard us talk about this story from stage before, but one of the top heroes would have to be Jim Elliott who's a guy who lived back in the 50s, and he actually met his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, on the mission field in Ecuador. 
And they started a family together and they worked in the rainforest of Ecuador and they decided they wanted to reach this tribe of people, the Wadani people. And this tribe of people, they didn't speak English. They probably hadn't even seen many foreigners. They'd been unreached. And they knew that these people did not know the gospel of Christ. And so Jim Elliott and four other men went to reach these people with the gospel. But they were a dangerous people. They were known to be headhunters. They were known to be very violent. And so just even approaching them was a huge risk on their lives. And looking from the outside, somebody might look at that and say, what a fool. Why would you take your family to Ecuador and give up everything that you had to to live in Ecuador? Why would you try to approach these people that are known killers? Are you not worried about your own life? What a foolish thing to do. And sure enough, as time went by, they they made very strategic moves to make contact with these people. They had a plane that would drop things from the plane to them to try and introduce themselves. And, And finally, they were able to land this plane on a sandbar and approach these people. And shortly after making first contact with them, Jim Elliott and the four other men that were with him were all killed by the people that they were trying to reach. And they lost their lives trying to reach these other people with the gospel. Now, back in the States, when word made it to America, several people were impacted by this story. And several people even came to Christ from that story thinking, well, what is worth? What in the world would be worth someone giving up their life willingly? But I wonder what it would be like in 2019 if that happened. In fact, even as we look back on that story, you'll hear like some anthropologists will pipe up and be like, "Mm, they contaminated the culture. Like they really should have just let those people be alone. They kind of got what they deserved. And similar stories we might see in the news, like in today's day and age, missionaries like that are just looked as foolish people. They just say like, why would you do something like that? Why would you risk so much to then give people something that, that they don't deserve? But Jim Elliott, before he died, he wrote this in his journal. And we've got a picture of his journal entry. You'll see underlined in red if you can make it out. He wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott operated from the same perspective as Paul did. That there is more to this picture than what we see that I can't lose my salvation. And if someone else comes to Christ, that can't be lost also. So anything that is lost in the process, man, that is not a loss at all. It's a gain if somebody comes to know Jesus. And that seems to be Paul's same perspective, that his life was of no value, that it was all trivial in light of eternity. Because if he were to die going to Jerusalem, well, that's just the doorway to life with Jesus. That's just the first step to his resurrection because of what Jesus did for him on the cross. So it's like that magic eye picture that you look at, but there's more going on than just what you see. If you felt a little left out from the magic eye picture, don't worry, I've got another one for you, all right? Any of you remember uh, these decoder things you used to see as a kid? Maybe in the back of like a book or something to come with the special red glasses. You should have on your, your, your chair or the seat back pocket in front of you, one of these little red film things, red clear film, ready? Are you ready for it? And using this, you can decode the image that you see on the screen. I don't know if we need to dim the lights again or not for that so you can see it better. But do you see what we've got there? Uh, anybody, is this better than the magic eye? You got it, is it working for you? Some of you are like, no, I just, I can't even still. What you should see as we put this red film over all the red words, the red words which are things like gain and success and achievement and safety and comfort, what we see is a verse underneath that, another verse 
from the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians where he says this, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary. Matt says to look across the room. That was the message. If you look at the screen opposite from you, you can see better. This is what I'm told. Is that the trick? Ah, okay. It works. Okay. So here's the hidden verse, the hidden message. The hidden message is this. We fix our eyes not on what is seen. Those red words, right, of success, of comfort, of safety. We fix our eyes not on what is seen because what is seen is temporary. All of that stuff goes away. All that we're building here on earth, my company, my fortune, my savings account, my retirement, all of that goes away when we die. So we fix our eyes not on what we can see, but on the unseen, what we can't see, on a relationship with Jesus, because the things of Christ are eternal. The things of Jesus, the things that have to do, the impact we can make in this world for Jesus, those things will last into eternity because Jesus is eternal. And his followers get to be in eternity with him. So what Paul operated from, what Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott operated from, was this idea that there is more to this life than we can see. And if only we could adopt, like have some kind of spiritual goggles, right? Like have some kind of glasses we could put over our eyes and just look at the world that way. Then we, the, the eternal would be what we'd see, right? And the temporary would fade away. But instead we have to practice that. We have to learn that ourselves. And for Elizabeth Elliot and the other people who their lives were radically altered when their husbands gave up their lives, many of us might think like, oh, I, I would turn my back on God. Like, that'd be it for me. Like, I'm definitely going back to America. I'm staying at home. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble in my, my walk with Christ. Not Elizabeth Elliot and the other people of their party. She went back about two years later. And she actually found a new way into this tribe of people. And she was able to go and live with the very tribe of people that murdered her husband, her and some other people. And through her work, they were to bring the Wadani people to Christ. And this whole tribe of people came to know Jesus. And what at one point was a violent tribe of people, headhunters trying to kill other people, became a peace-loving, Jesus-loving community. And they welcomed in Elizabeth Elliot and the others. And she found out there, along with the other missionaries, that it wasn't just their presence. They're coming again to try and love these people. It was the way their husbands had died. That these people that witnessed their death were very impacted and realized that something else was going on. Something beyond what the eye could see when these men died. One of the men that went with him who lost his life, his name was Nate Saint. He was the pilot that flew the plane. His son also went back to live with the Wadani people. And his son, when he came to know Christ, he was baptized by one of the men who killed his father. And so we see a beautiful story there of people that came to know Christ, of eternities that were changed, of lives that were changed, both for the Americans and for the people in Ecuador. All because some people said, no, this life that we see here, that's not all there is. The perspective that we have, the surface level, there's more to the story than that. That in light of eternity, our life on earth becomes trivial. And so what better to use our life on earth for than to push towards eternity and help other people meet eternity? Which again is just a radical perspective. Something that outsiders would just maybe not get. People that didn't have a relationship with Jesus just wouldn't get. Because to us on earth, our life becomes our most valuable possession, right? And that's something like we'll sometimes even hear people say, like at a, at a funeral. Have you ever heard this one at a funeral? Like, you just loved life. 
right? Like, I don't know what that really means. Like, oh, she just, she really loves life. I think they usually mean, like, that's somebody that's energetic and maybe outgoing or whatever. Like, they just, they loved life. And, and that seems to be, like, this great thing, but I don't really know what that means. I hope at my funeral nobody is like, oh, he loved life because I'm dead now, right? Like, oh, well, the thing I loved the most, like, is gone. Like, on my tombstone, don't put Elliot loved life. Put on there that I loved the giver of life, right? That I didn't live for life. I didn't live for the sake of living. That I lived for Jesus. That would be my goal. And I know this is a tall order because I know what I'm talking about. Like when we get to the extreme of it, it's saying, are we willing to die for Jesus? And I don't know that any of us in this room will ever actually come against that opportunity or that decision. Maybe we will. And I hope if that decision were put to me that I'd do well with it, that I would decide to die for Jesus. I don't know how I would react. I know that that's a tall order. But if we can get that right in our lives and say, okay, the ultimate price, I would be willing to pay for Jesus, then everything else gets a little bit easier, right? Okay, then my finances, I can sit a little more loosely of those. Or this decision at work that maybe is a gray area morally, it helps me make that decision easier. Because I know all of this is just trivial in comparison with the eternal. That I I would be ready to give up the greatest thing I have, my greatest possession in my life, so that I could show Christ to other people so that I could have eternity. So we live not in what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And so we want to invest in the unseen, invest in that which is eternal. My wife and I, we have a, this old car, it's a, it's a 2006 Nissan Sentra, and it is just done. Like, it's got a ton of miles. The, the back passenger side window, like, it can only be rolled up with your hands. Like, you got to push it up now. And anytime I hit a bump, like, it comes down a little further, you got to push it back up. The, uh, it takes, like, five times to start this car, or at least three. On a good day, it's three times. And I know, like, every time it always starts, but it takes a couple times to get it started. And so you'll be in the parking lot trying to start it, and people will walk by, like, are you okay? Do you need help? I'm like, oh, it's fine. It just takes five times to start it. Then when it does start, there's this, like, belt. I know it's a belt. People keep telling me it's a belt. I know it's a belt. I could fix the belt. This huge squeal. And then as you're driving all down through the neighborhood early in the morning, all the neighbors are like, ah, when's he going to fix that car? I'm not putting any more money into this car because I don't want to have this car anymore. We're saving up for a new thing, right? Like, we're saving up for We got to get the minivan. We don't want the minivan. We got too many kids for the normal cars. We got to get the minivan. So we're saving up for the new minivan. So I'm not putting any more money into this car, no matter how like dirty it is or like busted up it is. I'm not putting any more money into it because I'm saving for something new. This is temporary. I'm working for something else. And I think the same goes for our lives. What are we investing in now that is going to last forever? And what are we investing in that is just temporary? So if we can adopt this perspective that we see in Paul, I think it'll radically change our lives. And where does Paul get this perspective? Where did Jim Elliot get this perspective? From Jesus. Because it's the way Jesus went about life, that the most important thing he could do on this earth was to die so that we could come to eternity. There's a moment in Jesus' life, it's very much like Paul's, where he sets his face towards Jerusalem, is the line we're given. After the transfiguration, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that he would die there. Just as Paul knows in Jerusalem, he's probably going to be arrested and it'll lead to his death. And Jesus thought that death was worth it. That investment was worth it so that we could have eternity. And so as we close, we're going to move into a time of communion. And here's what I, I see with communion. It's, it's a lot like that magic eye picture, the decoder picture. This idea that there is more to life than we see. What you're going to see when you go to the stations is going to be some bread and some juice. That's the, the scene, right? And we know that all things that are seen are temporary. 
Like, we'll eat that, and it'll be gone in a couple days, or it'll mold if we leave it sitting around, right? Like, that is what is on that table there. And it's just a symbol, though. That thing that we see is a symbol for what is unseen, and that is Jesus' sacrifice for what we've only heard echoes of and stories of from our scriptures. That bread represents his body, and that juice represents his blood, and that that body was broken for us, that blood spilled out so that we could be with him in eternity because of the forgiveness he gave us by dying our death on the cross. And so as we make our ways around the room, I would invite you, if you consider yourself a believer in Christ, to find one of these trays and interact with the seen, but know that it represents the unseen. That as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, as we recognize his sacrifice for our sins, we recognize that because of it, what he did here on this earth in our temporary world, we can now have eternity. And so as we move to communion, I'd like you to have that in your minds this morning and also have in your minds, well, how much am I willing to give up to Jesus? What in my life am I maybe holding back? What parts of this talk make me feel uncomfortable? What parts about Paul's perspective on life feel like they're not gonna work out in my life? And maybe just have some time to, to talk about those things with God and realize, man, which of these things that I'm holding on to too tightly are gonna last and which of them are just temporary? And as we move to communion, I'd ask you to, to pray to God to help you adopt that perspective, that everything on earth becomes trivial in light of eternity. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Paul's example and the way that he moved towards Jerusalem, moved towards his likely death so that others could know you. And I pray, God, that wherever we are in our lives, whatever we are focused on, that you would bring into clarity your mission your goal for us, to make your name known into all the world, for us to come to know you better and help other people know you better. And let us see, God, that those are the things that last into eternity and not the things we tend to get obsessed with, not the things that we might hold on too tightly to. So God, as we move towards communion, we want to thank you for your son's sacrifice, but ask that you would help us to live in the unseen. It's in your name we pray.